Amen. Well, we sang Psalm 51. If you now give your attention to God's word, I will read to you Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise." For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Holy Father, thank you for your word and for this psalm. Let this psalm direct our prayers, our confession of our sins, our honest petitioning before you, and Lord, turn hearts toward you in the preaching of your word, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's brought to our attention in the call to worship, and now we will spend quite a bit of time thinking about it. Your sin your sin. Sin is real. Sin is a big problem. Sin is the problem in the world. Sin is the problem that Jesus Christ was sent. Sin is the, is the reason that, that you're here this morning because of what God has done about your sin and because of what he has commanded you to do with your sin. Uh, James uh, Montgomery Boyce uh, um, said with regard to this psalm, but thinking on all of, of, of life, said, pardon and purity. Those are the two great needs of every human being. Pardon and purity. Learning to pray, we're returning to singing the psalms, to, to going through another section of songs, psalms and thinking about um, what God is teaching us in the singing of psalms, why we are to sing psalms. And in the variety of, uh, of psalms that they are that teach us the variety of things that we are about to, 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 that we are to sing about. And learning to pray, learning to sing like the psalm singer, requires of us an honest assessment of oneself before the face of God. And that's why I believe so many churches have turned away from singing the psalms. We don't want to deal honestly with ourselves. We don't want to deal with the real gut honesty of who we are before God outside of Christ, of how much we even struggle in Christ as as followers of Christ to be obedient to him, we really do not like the idea of what the scriptures teach with regard to sin. And so many churches do not teach on sin or judgment or repentance and instead teach that God accepts us just as we are. There are all kinds of of churches that have exactly that on on their billboard. Come as you are. God accepts you just as you are. And the result of this, the result of the lack of dealing honestly with our sin, of, with dealing honestly with a holy God and his judgment upon sin, is we end up with spiritual lives that are quite flat, shallow, dull and stagnant, self-centered, looking for ways to simply improve myself and, uh, and, and, and have a better sense of my own self-actualization rather than Christ-centered, my great need for Christ and the glory of the gift that he offers. 
The result is lives that are, end up being joyless and lifeless, with no reason to be in awe of the amazing mercy of God. As Jesus warned, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. He was speaking um, to a Pharisee and then and, and with regard to this woman who was weeping in her contrition and in her joy of her forgiveness, in her awe of the mercy of God, and a Pharisee who didn't see himself in, in quite in much as need for mercy, who wasn't all that impressed with Jesus and was quite unimpressed with the mercy he was pouring out to this sinful woman letting her even touch him. Jesus turns to him and says, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. If I look at, my, if I look at the, our generation then, or the last couple of generations where there has been such an emphasis within the church of turning away from speaking of sin and judgment, I see a world around me that, is not, that, that, that does not love Christ or love God deeply. As generations before us in our nation did, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You see, God actually does meet us where we are. That is the glory of, and, and the kindness of God. He really does meet us where we are, but he does not accept us where we are. He'll meet us, he'll meet any of you, right where you are. But something else must happen for God to accept us, for God to receive us into his presence, into his fellowship. The title of, the, of, of, this, of, of words of this psalm indicate that this was written at a time of a particular event in David's life. You can find those events in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It is, of course, a well-known story of David's fall in his sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of her, of her husband, or the scene to it of his murder. And then of the story of Nathan, as the title reminds us, of Nathan the prophet coming and telling David a story. David thinks that he has hidden his sin, that it's all been put away, and nobody will know anything about it. And Nathan, the prophet, comes and tells him a story, a story of two men, one a great and rich man with a sheepfold of a innumerable amount who could have anything, any more that he wanted, just ask the Lord for more. And then one, one more shepherd who had just one sheep, but the other shepherd took and stole that sheep. Nathan turns to David and says, what should happen to that man? And David says, that man should be judged. That's wicked. That's terrible. And Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man. And David hears and is convicted of his sin. And he turns to the Lord. This psalm is written after that event. It reflects David's heart and it teaches us quite a bit about what it means to confess sin honestly before God. And so this is a particular event that David records before the Lord, and yet it's evident that God has given this to us. It's in the canon of Scripture. And it even says it's been given to the chief musician. It's been given to the chief musician. It's given to us in the inspired Scripture. It's suitable then for your private and personal confession, as well as for our corporate prayer and singing. That's why God gave it to us. This psalm is one of the glories of Scripture, treasured by many over many centuries. Boyce again says, the Psalm 51 has been a favorite of many well-known historical figures, particularly when they were dying. It was recited in full by Sir Thomas More and Lady Jane Grey when they were offered on the scaffold in the bloody days of Henry VIII and Queen Mary. Henry V had it read to him as he lay on his deathbed. William Carey, the great pioneer missionary to India, asked that it might be the text of his funeral sermon. If such great men and women of the faith were willing, were desirous even in their last days to hear these words read to them or used in speaking of them, how much more is this something that we should give our attention to, to learn to use in our prayers? This psalm is, is that kind of a glorious psalm for us. For in it we learn the true depth and despair of our sin, as well as the true nature and greatness of God's forgiveness. And the greater we understand our sin and the offense that is before our holy God, and then the work of the atonement, the covering, the blessing of forgiveness that comes by him and by him alone, the greater we see God's incredible mercy to me, to us. And that's what this psalm gives us the opportunity to reflect on and to enjoy. 
Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, quoting the Old Testament. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. How does that happen? And Psalm 51 leads us through this. David begins with a plea for nothing less than mercy and only mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. That's how he begins. Have mercy upon me, O God. And oftentimes in liturgical prayers, in the the times of confession, it is built into the church to, to pray, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We come before God confessing our sins, and and we learn from David how to confess our sins, not based upon any merit of our own to go before him. The only thing we can do is plead mercy. As Toplady wrote, nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer you, God, as I come before you. I plead nothing but your mercy. David cannot point to how obedient he had been in the past. And consider that. How obedient has David been at this point in his life in the past? We've seen him faithfully trust God, obey God over and over in all kinds of trials and circumstances, stand for righteousness and put down unrighteousness and and name the name of the Lord over and over again. This has been a faithful man. He was and is a man after God's own heart. But he can't point to any of that. He can't go before God in his sin and point to any of that. He can't point to his good and courageous works over the years. And and so notice, as he comes before and for us, there are no excuses made, no blaming of God or others for circumstances, no victimhood, no blaming others or your circumstances for the reason that you fell. Just simply a cry for mercy. Mercy is what we plead when we have no merit to earn God's ear or favor. And so God, David's plea for mercy and, and glory to God for this is his character. See what he says here? He'll say, have mercy upon me, O God, because I've been a really good guy. No, he says, I'm, I'm praying for your mercy because that's your character. Because that's who you are. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. His loving kindness and his tender mercies. God's loving kindness, that is his hesed, is is not only his mercy. It's it's not just loving kindness. Whenever you see loving kindness in the Old Testament, this this word is rich with meaning. And it doesn't just simply mean um, that he's loving and that he's kind. He is loving and is kind. But it's a, it's a word that connects God to his covenantal faithfulness. He made covenant with us in Christ. Now, we're, we're in Christ. He, and he made covenant in, in the old covenant system through Christ, through the Son, but before the Son was incarnate, to his, to his, his people. And, and he is pleading, David is pleading based on the character of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. You said you'd forgive sin. You'd said we could come before you. And so based upon that, God's loving kindness is not only his mercy, but his, faith, his covenantal faithfulness. Um, even, even when Moses went before God and said, Lord, show me your glory. Show me, would you show me your glory? And, and you, know, you, you might expect that God would say, you know, okay, watch this. And t- go, go off, to the, you know, off into the stars, watch some huge explosion in the universe, light beyond measure. Exodus 33, um, God answers that request to Moses and says, I'm going to place you in, in a rock and I'll go by. You can't see my face. But he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, when, I, when, I, when you pass by, I, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, and it's going to look like this. I'm gracious to whom I am gracious, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then in chapter 35, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. That's Yahweh, Yahweh God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. 
And, and so you can see on the end, end of that, he's saying, I, I deal with sin, and sin is going to be dealt with, and iniquity is going to, it, the, the result of iniquity is going to be a harsh judgment because of my holiness. I will not stand for any, for any transgressions and any transgressors, but I'm a merciful God. And Paul would write in, in Romans that this is, it's only through Jesus that, that, that God is both just to his word and the justifier. The one who justifies, the one who makes righteous by his atoning, merciful work that he offers to us through Jesus Christ and that he does in us and through us through Jesus. And so in confession of sin, do not plead according to anything in you, but only on the mercy of God. Do not say, you know, I've been walking with you for years, God. You, you, you know I'm basically good. In, instead, truly, Truly know who God is as you go before him. By God's mercy, then David asks that God cleanse him. And he wants him cleansed all the way. He says, blot out and wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He knows he can't do it. That's the other thing about confession. Confession isn't you getting yourself cleaned up before God. Because you can't. Sin is like falling into a tar pit. You get out of that tar pit and you try to wipe it off on this side or that side. Or, or it's like kids, it's like the cat in the hat came back. The cat in the hat comes back, right? You get that pink stuff all over you. It, it, it just, it won't go away. You, 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 need, you need something supernatural. More supernatural than thing one and thing two. You, you need, you, you need but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a lesson being learned there. Someone else has to clean you up. You trying to clean you up won't work. You taking your, your, your dirty hands that have done those dirty deeds can't wash the sin, can't wash the, uh, off your arms or, or, or your legs or the rest of you. Someone else has to come and clean you. And so David cries out, blot out, wash me thoroughly, and cleanse me. But then it goes even deeper. He says, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So, confession requires naming particular sins. Confession, the word confession in the Greek is homologeo. It's not, it's not hard to understand exactly what it means. It's homa, same, and lego, it's to say. It's to speak the same thing. It's to say the same thing about sin, the same thing about your sin that God says. And so it's not an affair, it's adultery. It's not, uh, you know, it's not pilfering a little, it's stealing. It's, it's not um, having, a, having a, a bad attitude today because I've, I've got a headache. No, it's, it's whining and complaining. It's, it, you, you're, you're naming and you're agreeing with God that which you have done just as he has named it. That's what confession is. It's agreeing with God, which again, keeps you from being able to make any kind of excuses about it. And while we do sin against others, ultimately that sin is against God. And so that's why he says, so he's, he has taken another man's wife, and then he's had that man killed, and then he's tried to hide it all and lie about it. Um, and, and you'd think he would say, I, I need to go and, and confess that sin to those that I've harmed and those that I uh, conspired with to harm. I need to go and confess those sins there. But he says, Ultimately, ultimately, my sin is before you. He knows that first of all, he has to dealt, deal with the one who truly has broken his covenant. He's transgressed his law. It, if you think about it, if you think about it this way. It, it's only because God exists that doing a wrong against our neighbor is a sin against them. It, it's only because God exists. Nobody here, if, if there is no God, right? Okay, now think about that. If there is no God, if there is no heaven, <laughs> there is no hell, then there is no reason that you have a right to anything. Nobody can do you wrong because there's no wrong to be done. Because there's, you, you, you might say, I prefer that you would not treat me that way. But that's just your preference. If there's no God, there's no transcendent, there's no transcendent law that can be broken. Okay? And that means that when you sin against someone, you sinned against them because God said so. 
And ultimately, what you need to do, who you have to deal with is God, who told you you may not treat that person that way. You may not speak to that person that way. You may not neglect that person that way. You, you must do what I said. So your, your confession is, first of all, dealing with the one who gave the law to you. Also, a heart turned to God in confession, when that happens, when this heart is turned to God in confession, while grieving what has been done to someone else, that person now grieves even more deeply what he has done before the living God. And, and this is one of the reasons why, again, um, uh, shallow confession does not lead to great rejoicing before the Lord. Shallow confession that does not, you're, if you're not dealing with God first, if you're just like, well, I, I hurt that person, I need to go ask their forgiveness, and you don't do any business with God, well, you also, you will not have that sense of great forgiveness. And then your love for God won't explode, it won't grow, it won't increase. But the one who understands how great his sin was against God, that, was, that, that happened as he mistreated someone, is going to find himself... Um, truly contrite, as he's going to talk about here in a moment. He's going to be broken before God. And when he hears the words, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, it's going to be wonderful. It's the, the, it's, it's the difference as night and day. It's the difference as black and white. It's the difference, as, it's as di it's the difference between being in prison and being free. That's what it is to acknowledge and understand what you've done against God. It is before his holiness and justice that we are truly guilty. Our relationship with him torn apart. So when Nathan confronted David with his sin, as is recorded in 2 Samuel 12, David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. I have sinned against the Lord. So David confesses his sinfulness. Behold, uh, his own personal, uh, not just his sin, but his sinfulness as well. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Again, what he's, what he's saying here is, uh, this isn't something I just tripped into. Like, I'm not really like this, God. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what came over me. But something happened, and I, I did this sin. No, he says, this was no freak accident at all. Rather, our, our, his confession and our confession of sin should include the recognition of what warped men and women we are. Spurgeon wrote with regard to this, the fountain of my life is polluted as well as its streams. When we want to think that, no, the fountain within me is, is actually pretty good. It's actually pretty good. Something happened as the streams were coming out, right? David says, no, that's, that's not. And this is the doctrine of original sin. This is the doctrine of the fact that we are depraved by nature. That when Adam fell into sin, he threw all of us, because he was, he was representing all of us, he threw all of us into sin, in, into the consequences of that sin, into, into, into misery and into death. And, and, the, and the reason that we, we all are sinners is because, is, or the reason that we, are all, that we all sin is because we're all sinners. It's, it's, what, it's what we do by nature. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that we are. So there's no excuse to make for your sin in trying, trying to say, that's not who I really am. No, no that's, th that really is who you really were. And even regenerate men, even regenerate Christians must deal with their remaining sin. So Paul would write in Galatians 5, you say, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. And anyone who denies that, anyone who denies that their flesh is not, is not at, at war with the Spirit, does not, is, is not being honest with themselves, or is, uh, is, is not aware of how much sin they're actually in, and they're, they're making excuses for it. Because an honest person before God, an honest person before God knows that that was his old nature, and the remaining sin is still a battle. And I have to turn and respond and, and, and ask for the granting of God's spirit and the work of his spirit for me to become the kind of person that God wants me to be. David's sin was part of a war in his soul between flesh and spirit. And for those following David in honest confession, we may also acknowledge that God desires and will perfect in us a pure nature and upright conduct. 
And so we, we know, and it says in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. He says, look, I, I, was, I was conceived in this. This is who I am by nature. And I know, God, as I'm confessing to you, you're going to change me. That's, that's why I've got, that's, that's the other reason that we go before God in confession of sin. Not just to be cleansed, not just to be pardoned, but also for purity, also to be changed. Do you believe God will change you? In, in the confession of sin, part of the confession of sin is, I'm going to you not just to be forgiven, but that you would change me. And he promises in Christ that he will. In Philippians, Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is good news. So confession of sin is, is good news. The ability to go and confess our sin is good news. Confession includes then a cry for God to change us and to change us from within and not simply forgiveness so that we go on sinning again. He says, again, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You don't just want it on the externals. You want, I was conceived in sin. I want to be completely changed from within, God. And you have said that you will do so. Okay, so let's talk about then restoration, this, this work of pardoning. And then renewal, this, this work of purifying. Those are the two parts that really come out in the next few verses. The restoration, my relationship, I have to be restored in my relationship, reconciled in my relationship to a holy God. And then renewal, I want to be changed from within that I, I'm, I'm a different person. I become more and more like God wants me to be. Verses 7 through 9, the work of pardoning. Listen, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Well, in true confession and repentance, there are no half measures. He, he wants to be cleaned all the way outside, all the way on the inside as well. The recognition of what sin is and what sin requires leads a repentant sinner to cry out for cleansing all the way down. Hyssop. Hyssop. Did you bring your hyssop with you this morning? So you could hand it to the Lord and say, would you please purge me with this hyssop? Hyssop was a small plant. It, it oftentimes grew out of rocks uh, or out of stone walls and that kind of thing. Hyssop was a, a, a small plant that would be pulled out and used in ceremonies that, um, that God had uh, commanded to be done. Hyssop was this, it was used in ceremonial cleansings of lepers in Leviticus chapter 14, and for those who had come into contact with a dead body in Numbers 19. There would be an animal sacrifice, a substitute of another one on your behalf, and then ceremonially, the, the, the hyssop plant would be dipped into the blood and then sprinkled upon the one who was confessing their sins or who had been unclean and needed to be declared clean after a, a ceremonial washing had been taken place. And so this is, this is where the idea of sprinkling the blood of Christ comes from. The sprinkling of the blood of the atonement comes from. And, and, but, but the first time hyssop was used, it was, is, it's, is, the first time it's mentioned being used is in Passover, in Exodus 12. And you're probably familiar with this, where the blood of the, of the lamb that was sacrificed for, and for that family on Passover was, was taken and, and, and then hyssop was dipped into that blood. And then you were told to put the blood on the doorposts of, of your house. And what this, this, this symbolized when the angel of death came that night was that there, there, there already a death had occurred. And so the angel of death that was coming to kill all of the firstborn all throughout, all throughout Egypt, including all of, all of Israel that was there, the angel of death would pass over and the firstborn wouldn't die if there was a lamb, a lamb that had been provided, that had, that had, been, that had been sacrificed for that family, and then the blood had been put on the doorposts. We're to see exactly through that, what we are to understand that has been done for us. And so this, this caused the angel of, uh, of, of death to pass over. Listen to, um, to the writer of Hebrews talk about this. It says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. This is another time that, that Moses uses this. And he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he's brought them in. He's commanded them. 
And then, and then he's told, he sprinkles all the people according to the word that has been read and, and, and taught from, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Listen again carefully to verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You you should take that and understand. All of your sin requires the shedding of blood. There aren't little sins that don't require the shedding of blood. When we approach a holy God, everything has to be taken care of. And when we're reestablishing our fellowship with God in in that reconciliation, we have to constantly point to the blood of Christ which has been shed for us. That's the only way back in. That's the only way back into fellowship, back into that reconciliation with God. That shedding of blood then had to come from an innocent, clean substitute. Adam was a covenant head. And as a covenant head, all who were in Adam fell into sin and became like him. Jesus is the second covenant head. Jesus was clean and perfect, lived a perfect life. And he was able for his people, he was able for his people to die on the cross to shed his blood. So that all of the people who are in Christ have, have received the blood of forgiveness. But it's only that. That's it. That's all there is for us. And we, we approach that, we receive that by faith in the hearing of the gospel. Okay, back, back to our passage here. So purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. When we're told to purge, that, that word purge, um, actually it's very interesting. The, the Hebrew word um, is regularly translated sin. But in a particular voice, that word means literally almost de-sin. To purge me, so to purge me from my, um, to purge me with hyssop is to descend me. Get it off me. Get it away from me. He says, purge me, wash me, and then I will be whiter than snow. And, and, he, and he goes on to describe this. So to wash also, that, that verb designated a thorough scrubbing of, as a garment deeply tainted with impurities or leprosy. It's not a light washing. It's a deep scrubbing that, was, that would take place. Only then would he be clean, and only God could then make him whiter than snow. Isaiah would pick up this, this phrase as well and use it in Isaiah 118. And then, then there's this idea of these broken bones. We don't know that any of David's bones were broken. He's, I think he's speaking metaphorically. He's, he talks otherwise in other places of his bones aching with, with the, the guilt of his sin. So in thinking about this, it could be that he means that he needs, he needs those bones set back in place, these bones that either God had broken or made painful due to the sin, um, or maybe as a sign of repentance, God breaking his bones, breaking his legs to keep him from continuing down this path of sin. God has granted him repentance, broken his bones, and now will God now reset them? Reset them, put me back on the path that I should be on, a path of rejoicing before you, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Have you ever seen bones rejoicing? I have. I have lots of grandkids now. Hand them a handful of candy, and their bones just rejoice. They just, they can't stand still. <laughs> right? And so, and that's what happens. That's what happens. And, and that's what happens with our spirit. When, when you have been truly washed whiter than snow, when you've been descended, when it's all been blotted out, and your bones have been set right, and you've been put back on the fat path of God, you know how? You know how it's right? You, you, know, you know how you've done it? You've taken it all the way down? It feels like this. Wow, look at this. What's happened? This is, and, and that is... See, the problem oftentimes with Christians, serious Christians, pious Christians, is they get over-pious. And they think that what they have to do is they've got to live in despair over their sin. They've got to feel really bad about it for a really, really long time. 
Now, now there is another problem, and we talked about it, and that is dealing lightly. But once God has said to you, because you have said to him, what I did was wrong, it would be judged at the last day, and if the blood of Christ hadn't covered it, I'd be in, I would be eternally lost. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for forgiving my sins. And God says to you, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm not sure. It was really, really bad. What you're saying is you need to do more than what Jesus did. You're saying you need to add something to the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. And you're feeling bad about your sin after it has been told to you. You're feeling guilty about your sin after, after it's been told to you that you have this guilt. That is a sin that needs to be confessed. You're lying, in essence, you're lying about the efficacious work of the blood of Christ. Do you see that? Now, you might feel guilty because what you did that caused sin, it was sin before God, caused terrible trouble to someone else. And you feel guilty about that. Well, part of confession of sin is going to be making the right restitution. But that restitution isn't part of your forgiveness. That restitution is because of your forgiveness. Because of a heart that has been changed and says, um, like Zacchaeus says when he comes down from the tree, um, and, and he says, anybody that I've wronged, I'll pay back uh, X amount of times. Can't remember how many times he says. But I, I'm going to pay him back. He's just, he, Jesus didn't tell him to do that. If you really, want, you really want me to come dine in your house, you really want fellowship with me, you got to go make things right. No, he says, Zacchaeus, you're mine. Let's go. We're going to go eat together. Zacchaeus goes, wow. Does a little dance. Anybody I've harmed, I'm paying back. Not out of, because it's not, it's not guilt as much as it is, as it, and it's not even just obligation, as much as it is, I want to be like you, Lord. So I want to make right, like you make right. And the path of rest, restitution doesn't have to be a path of groveling. It can be a path of rejoicing, giving thanks. Brett and I have a, a, a common friend from college who went to college, and he says, honestly, he says this way, I went to college to become a criminal. He studied criminal justice, and he was studying criminal justice because he, was, he thought he was a pretty good criminal. He's 19 years old, but you know, he thought he was a pretty good criminal, and he thought that um, he, he was particularly good at shoplifting, and he, was, he, he had shoplifted for quite a bit. Well, he came to Christ, and one of the things that he did, um, joyfully, he sat down having talked to a pastor about this. He made a list of all the things he could think of that he had stolen from all the different places. And he'd go into a place like Eddie Bauer and he'd, he'd, say, he'd say, I need to talk to the manager. And he said, you know, a couple of years ago I, I, I stole this, uh, um, this jacket. It's worn or I don't even have it anymore, whatever. I, I need to pay you back, and I, I just, but I need to confess that, that to you. And he, he said time after time, the, the manager would look at him and go, What? And then, and then he would say, hold on just a second. And he'd call the other employees around. Listen to this kid. I want you to hear what he has to say. And he would have an opportunity to share of God's kindness, his loving kindness, of, of blood that was shed because of his sin, and how joyfully he wanted to make right. That's what restitution looks like. It's not out of guilt. It's out of glorious, um, it's out of glorious freedom that you have walking with Christ. That's setting the bones right. The blotting out of iniquities was the erasing of the valid charges against David. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And some of you need to hear that. Colossians 1.14 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's all been bought. It's all been paid for. The deed is done. Or Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. The idea is that there was a, a formal charge on a legal notice, and you have been determined on that legal notice guilty of that transgression. And God has gone, nope, and he's wiped it out. It's gone. It cannot be brought up against you. The accuser cannot bring it against you. No one can bring it against you. It's all been taken care of in the cross. It says that the hand, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Where are those charges against you? They're on the cross. They're blood-stained now. They were buried with Christ. 
your sins buried with Christ, you buried in your sinfulness with Christ, and as he raises from, as he's risen from the dead, they're gone, your sin's gone, and you come back out into new life in Christ. That's what's going on. So when we confess our sins, it's not like we are reenacting or that he has to die for our sins again. It is, it is returning to what has happened, claiming what has happened, and being restored. So in John, John would write in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Christ already took care of it. So of course he's ready to. The act of confession is agreeing with God, is coming before him in that repentance. I don't want to be this way. And that leads us on to um, the renewal, the work of purifying as well. Verses 10 through 13. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. And so David and, the tr- as, and true repentees of all sorts want to be purified all the way down. They do not simply want to be clean to then go back to their old ways. They want a clean heart and a steadfast spirit that loves and keeps God, God's ways, loves the covenant with God. But honestly, as it says in here, when he says, um, he, he goes on and says, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. So honestly, it might mean praying for what you know you should want, but don't want yet, or you don't yet want, or you don't yet have. Create in me a clean heart, he says. Renew a steadfast spirit, as though he doesn't yet have it. I, I need to have this, I need a spirit that's steadfast within me. Give that to me, God, is part of his confession. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, because it isn't there yet. So he pursues God and says, I know you give it, and I'm asking for it. In verse 11, I think, um, it, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me is not, um, is, is not about having lost his salvation, but rather having lost the anointing that he had, particularly as king. He's recalling what happened to Saul when Saul had disobeyed and lost, and, and the removal of the spirit, that anointing of the spirit that had been upon him. And so, He's recalling that, and the repentant heart knows that he needs that spirit. He needs the Holy Spirit to keep following God. And it will require of him nothing less than being in the presence of God and full of his spirit in us. And how do we, how do we know that's going on? Well, like in Ephesians 5, when it says, don't be drunk with wine, don't give yourself to being controlled in that way, but rather be filled with the spirit. And when you're filled with the spirit, you start, you start singing stuff like this. Right? It says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he even must plead for the joy of his salvation to be given to him again by God, that the glorious fruit of the Spirit would return when he was no longer grieving the Spirit. But note again, David had to ask for this, even plead for it. God would withhold these from us at times, not only to require our confession and repentance, that's why you experience the grieving of the Spirit, but to instruct us then to persistently come to Him with our requests, to be in His presence, to seek renewal and the work of purifying from Him and no one and nothing else. I think part of the reason God doesn't restore uh, the joy of our salvation quite as quickly as we might want is, is all, so that he, we keep learning I only get that from him. There's nothing else here on this earth that can give me that joy. There's no other relationship on this earth that can give me that joy. There's no other pleasure. And so he, he doesn't restore that joy so that even though you might have those things, you continue to turn only to him, only to him for that joy. Seek him, I believe. Seek him with a whole heart is what we're learning here as we see this. And then verse 13 is, is very interesting as well. So he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And it's interesting on several counts. David promises that he will then teach other transgressors God's way. And that's exactly what he did. That's what the psalm is, right? The psalm is teaching us this. Some would wonder, though, why David did not specify his sins but that seems to be that so this psalm can be used by all with their specific sins. And some might argue that David is only privately praying to God and not confessing openly to those he sinned against. 
But here, his testimony actually is in broad daylight, declaring, declared over centuries, in fact. This is how I sinned. The title of my psalm is declaring exactly what I did. And especially as a king, as a covenant head, those under my headship need to know how I have sinned. Those who will not confess their sins to, to those they have wronged, and those who are in a position of any covenantal headship who do not confess their sins toward those under their care are doomed to lose the joy of their salvation and the blessing of God upon their work. Too often, and I'll speak to fathers particularly, but really to parents, all of you, parents of children are afraid of confessing their sins to their kids because maybe, maybe like you're thinking, well, maybe they didn't notice. Maybe they didn't notice how I just spoke to my wife. We'll just, we'll just go on. We'll just get going right again. Wait. As opposed to saying, children, you heard the way that I spoke to my wife, your, your mother. And God says that we may not speak that way. We are to be tenderhearted and kind. I'm to be gracious and honor her. And, and the words that I spoke and the tone that I used was not, would you please forgive me? And, and my wife, would you please forgive me for speaking that way to you? Kids, you need to know that God is kind, conv- convicted me of that sin. And I need to ask your forgiveness too. So quite the opposite then, in the home particularly when this happens, there's this wonderful lesson that is taught to your children when you confess your sins before all you wronged and those who saw. Those who saw. It, God blesses that. Um, your children, they, they forgive you. And, and there's not this kind of odd tension waiting for time to make everything right again. Instead, there's an opportunity to just open the wound, deal with it, have the confession, have the forgiveness, have the restoration. Not only that, I've just now taught my children how to be honest about their sin. Not only, you know, so I've been humbled, and they have learned. It's a great and glorious gift that God has given to us. Finally, there is worship with joyful contrition that goes on in verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then the rest of this passage. True worship filled with joy and thankfulness is wrapped, though, in a heart of brokenness and contrition. Lots of humility. The good news is only as good as the bad news you recognize. The more you understand your sin, the greater the good news of Jesus is. His contrite heart cares less about the material consequences of his sin and more about relieving the sin of his guilt, or the guilt of his sin, I'm sorry. And a guilty heart is shamed into silence and gospel relief of that sin cannot withhold its praise to the God of his salvation, verse 15. God's delight is not simply in the sacrifice of the burnt or ascension offering, but in the consecration of the whole person which the offering represented. So there's a, there's a verse here you might think doesn't really apply to us, but actually it's something we are doing. He says, for you do not desire the sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Well, we've been off. This is part of the burnt offering. This is part of the ascension offering in our, in, in our liturgy. We have the sin offering where we offer up our, we confess our sins. Then there's the sacrifice of the ascension. Our whole persons are offered up to God and the word of God deals with us all. And, but God says, I don't give a rip if you're sitting here in church, if your heart's not contrite. He says other places, I, I can't stand the sound of your music. Not because I don't like that style, because I don't like your heart, right? And so he, he wants us offering up our prayers and praise. He wants us sitting here. He wants us with him under his word, but he does not want us here going through the motions and showing ourselves off as some kind of religious elite. Look at me. He wants us here broken before him as the sacrifice, as the living sacrifices with contrite hearts. And when we come that way, then he receives our, our, our praise and our worship and blesses it, and, it uh, mightily. So in this, ser- in this service of worship, it means that our prayers and singing and reading and preaching of the word are to be exercised with a broken and contrite heart, seeking the mercy of the Lord and declaring our praise for his loving kindness. And then, as, as he writes, these, O God, you will not despise. In verses 18 and 19, then, also, he says, do good in your good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, And if you think about it for a second, there weren't any walls of Jerusalem in David's day. And so some people will say that this was added later on, but I I don't think you have to take that interpretation. 
I think one of the things he's realizing as, is as a king, his sin is going to have a great impact upon the kingdom. In fact, it's, it is going to have a great impact upon his kingdom. And so part of his, his praying is that in, 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 I need to take responsibility for who I, have, who I am over. And God, I need you to build the walls. Of, you need to protect these people. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Restore us in your good pleasure. And then you'll be pleased with the, with the sacrifices of righteousness. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump regarding allowing or even celebrating sin in the congregation as the Corinthians were guilty of. You cannot bring, and so this is, this is the warning to any one of us, you cannot bring your unconfessed sin into this assembly and not have it weakened the body, the rest of us. But the covenant works powerfully in both directions. Faith-filled contrition, confession, and repentance not only strengthens you, but builds the walls of Jerusalem. Then our corporate worship is efficacious for tearing down strongholds and establishing the city in righteousness. And so let me conclude. The road to joy is always a road of confession and honesty before God. That's the road to joy. It's always a road of confession and honesty before God. You are no hypocrite to sing his praises and obey his word when you don't want to, if you honestly confess that to him as well. God restored David, granted him a contrite heart, renewed his joy, and, and gave him a steadfast spirit again. And he will do so to every sinner who comes to him in Jesus' name. If for you he still has not, well, that's why you have Psalm 51 in front of you. And again tomorrow. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 51 is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the heart of this psalm. Pardon for your sins, which you find in Jesus and in only in Jesus. And purity, purity, being made new, clean, alive in him. This is the work of our merciful God, and it is offered to you, offered all to you, to the praise of his gracious glory. And amen. Merciful God, we praise your name. You are the God who forgives, who has provided a way, the only way to salvation and a new way of being human. Let us rejoice as those who have been made new, washed of our sins, and restored to our Heavenly Father. And for those, Father, here, who are sitting in their tar pit, thinking they can get themselves clean, would you open eyes and turn them to your Son? Let them find forgiveness and their sins washed away, white as snow. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so another psalm that David wrote on this occasion is Psalm 32. It's number 60. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs>